0: On October 18th, The Washington Post hosted the third edition of its Addiction in America live interview series, which convenes policymakers, researchers, and healthcare experts to examine the country's opioid crisis. The program came just days after the release of a groundbreaking investigation by The Washington Post and CBS 60 Minutes, which detailed ties between the drug industry, Congress, and the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. In this segment, the reporters who broke the story, The Washington Post's Lenny Bernstein and Scott Hyam and 60 Minutes producer Ira Rosen, discuss how DEA efforts to crack down on the opioid epidemic were derailed by Congress, just as the number of opioid-related deaths increased across the country. Let's listen.
1: So great to see all of you here. I'm Libby Casey with The Washington Post. I'm one of our on-air reporters, and I'm joined by the team that made this story Uh, happen, and it's great to have you guys on stage and get to hear from you in person. Lenny Bernstein, health and medicine reporter here at The Washington Post, Scott Hyam, investigative reporter at The Washington Post, and Ira Rosen, producer at 60 Minutes, uh, who made this piece happen from the 60 Minutes perspective. So we'll talk about two things in the next little while, Um, where we go from here, but also we want to start with how this collaboration came to be, because The Post and 60 Minutes haven't worked together on something like this in in nearly a decade. Um, So let's start with... Where does a reporting story start? Lenny, how did you even get the idea? You know, we see the end result 18 months later. Where did this
2: piece start? So uh, in the beginning of 2016, we had a a project um, launched on the national desk at the Post and the idea was to try to explain to people why um, so many people were dying of opioid overdoses, particularly in middle America, particularly um, middle class whites. And I had an editor who said to me, I want you to explain uh, how all these hundreds of millions of opioid pills get on the street. It doesn't make sense to me why we can't just keep them in the supply chain. And so I started reading up on it and I started calling around. And indeed, uh, there had been a lot of coverage of the manufacturers and the doctors and the pharmacies, but nothing on these wholesale distributors. So I realized there was an opportunity to, to write about their role. I started calling around, and eventually uh, someone said, you've got to call Joe Ranazzisi. This is what he's been doing for the past decade. And I did. And pure luck. He had just recently been forced out of his job. He was very upset about what was going on. And, you know, we started talking. I got an earful. Couldn't get him off the phone.
1: Uh, let me just mention if you want to join this conversation, you can tweet us, hashtag post live, We'll read a comment or two and get our uh, get our journalist perspective on this. Uh, so you know the distributors are, are so key here, and I want to just pause for a moment. These are companies I'd never heard of before. Um, but they ended up being a crucial part of your reporting. Just give us a sense of the
2: scope of this. So the distributors are, um, the three big distributors are among the top 25 largest companies in America, McKesson, Amerisource, Bergen, uh, and Cardinal Health. And nobody's ever heard of them. We we had not heard of them. Um, They take the drugs from the manufacturer and they bring them down to the pharmacies and other places where we all buy them. That makes them uh, the most important point in the supply chain if you want to choke off the pills that are getting out onto the street and being used by users and dealers.
1: Did you know that story at the time? I mean, you get this guy, Joe Renn on the phone. Do you go to Scott and say, hey, I might have somebody here. How does this collaboration begin?
2: Well, I was clueless until you know, Joe started explaining this to me. And you know, most reporters have had that conversation where the guy on the, on the other end of the phone says, everybody's corrupt except for me. And then you, <laughs> you, you start checking it out. And actually, everything Joe said checked out. So I took it as far as I could. But um, very smart editors at the Washington Post realized that it needed an investigative reporter. Um, and so they connected me with Scott. And where did it go from there, Scott?
3: Uh, well, you know, we kept hearing these stories that uh, the DEA was slowing down its cases. And, uh, and a lot of cases that were being made out in the field against these companies were going nowhere and they were hitting a brick wall in D.C. So we started putting together a list of people who were working in the field who had either were current DEA uh, investigators or who had retired recently and we just began cold calling them, calling them at home, calling their cell phones, sending emails calling people across the country and we soon began to connect with people who were very very upset they these this is a it, the, the, these people work for something called a division of diversion control at the DEA which is again something that Lenny and I had never heard of before uh, I've been a reporter for almost 30 years and I, and I never even knew that this division existed and it's a group of really dedicated men and women who do nothing but but uh, regulate the pharmaceutical industry and make sure that pharmaceuticals do not spill onto the streets. And so these men and women were deeply frustrated because they were making cases against these companies to try to stop the flow of drugs, and these cases were getting stalled at headquarters. They, weren't under, uh, they couldn't understand why, and, and people in these communities were dying left and right, and they were the ones who were on the front lines. So, you know, moms and dads and grandparents and brothers and sisters were coming to them and saying, what are you guys doing to stop this epidemic? And they were saying, look, we're doing the best we can. So that was the, the first thing that we did is we we documented the slowdown of cases at the DEA in the face of what we later found out to be intense pressure from Capitol Hill um, and from the pharmaceutical industry.
1: How does 60 Minutes get involved?
4: So um, we're... We, we are blessed to be working with these guys, they're, they're fantastic reporters, but I think all of this begins with the fact that people have to trust each other. Mm-hmm. And I've had a relationship with Jeff Lean, who's a fantastic investigative uh, editor here. Uh, we did a story with John Solomon when he was a reporter here on bullet lead technology in FBI lab and it resulted in uh, a number of people getting freed from jail, the lab uh, being changing their analysis of things. So we had a really great experience to build on. Uh, and Jeff and I had stayed in touch over the years. And we talked about how, you know what could we do, what would be the right story to do. Uh, and then it ultimately ended up with uh, Marty Baron and Jeff Fager, who's the executive producer of 60 Minutes, uh, having one phone call. And uh, this was the first story that uh, I think Marty or Jeff had brought up in the call. And Fager said, that's what we've got to do. It was. I, I was like, you know, let's hear what else they got. And no, <laughs> he said, no. This is what this is what we we got to do. And so, how, with how that, that is- how did you
1: know? What was it about the story? Oh, then? it was. It
4: was. Uh, you know, when you have two hundred thousand people dying in the United States, and still many people are still unaware of the scope of this, uh, you know, that's a big story. Uh, and 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 as I joked with my friends here, is you don't have two hundred thousand people dying without leaving a paper trail, and. That's sort of the way I kind of approached it. And what was so wonderful about this collaboration is that each one of us brought a different talent. It's kind of like bringing uh, three chefs into a restaurant who each have different skill sets. So we were able to share sources. We were able to share kind of uh, editorial approaches. We stole lines from each other's story. and, and uh, it was really, uh, you know, and we trusted each other. They, they looked at our copy, we looked at their copy, provided suggestions both ways, uh, and, and it, was really, it was really a true collaboration. I mean, um, these guys had done a fantastic story in October 2016, unfortunately it dropped a couple of weeks right before the presidential election, so it was buried, nobody really noticed it. Uh, and uh, with, the, with the approach to the new bill, it, it gave it a new impetus to take a second look at the story.
1: Yeah, it's so different getting somebody to talk to a print reporter than it is getting him to talk to a camera. How did you guys deal with sources, especially Joe Ranazizi, who, who really stands out in this story? He's someone that CBS has called the the biggest whistleblower in, in nearly 50 years, basically. Well, we,
4: we, had a, we had a lunch in a Greek restaurant in uh, Arlington, Virginia, and we all sat around for a couple hours and we chatted. And, and I think it's like it's the same with any relationship. You, a certain level of trust develops. Uh, and Bill Whitaker is a, a, a guy who's a, a total gentleman, a total honest guy who's been in the business forever. He he did the uh, he did the interview with Joe, and I think instantly. And that's Bill, of course the correspondent on He's the, the correspondent on the broadcast, and I think they've developed a great chemistry between Bill and Joe almost instantaneously. Uh, and 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 uh, you know we all were in the room and we watched it happen. And uh, the way it kind of unfolded is the interview is going on and Scott and Lenny are writing down suggested questions as well. I mean, that's what I mean by a true collaboration. They became co-producers during that segment while we were doing that interview and the other interviews as well.
1: I asked Lenny if you'd ever worked with 60 Minutes before or done something with 60 Minutes, and you looked at me as though I'd asked you if you'd if you were the King of England. I mean, you were like, no, 60 Minutes. I mean, did this feel uh, like a unique opportunity for you guys? I'm a
2: health reporter. You know, I I, I don't get an opportunity to work with 60 he Minutes even that go to often. the
4: doctor. We're talking.
2: I don't get an opportunity to work with Scott all that often until this happened. Um, so it was a it was like you know a dream come true for me. Um, I also want to say that. There's something a little bit magical about when you sit a guy down in front of those 60 Minutes cameras with Bill Whitaker three feet away. I mean, we had talked to Joe many, many times and we had gotten great information from him. Then you read what comes out of his mouth when he's talking to 60 Minutes and you're like, oh, my God, there's just something about it that gets people to talk.
3: And I think it's a testament to Bill Whitaker's interview style. I don't know how many of you've seen him. I'm, I'm sure many of you have. But to see him in action, I mean, basically what he did is he sat down, and, and you know, Ira, you know, helping behind the scenes with this, but sat Joe down. And, and Bill is sitting directly across from him and their knees are practically touching and they basically didn't let him get up for almost four hours. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe a bathroom break, but that was it, they didn't really feed him, they gave him like a little bit of water. And, <laughs> We've got a- It was like he was at the Bagram Air Force Base, you know, and he was being like interrogated by the CIA. But, but, but you're being interviewed by a guy who is like so skilled, and, and is such a gentleman and, and, and puts you at ease. And, and I really learned so much watching Bill interview him because he took him from the very beginning of his career at the DEA and walked him through this entire episode of him being kind of like the insider of the 21st century. And it was a remarkable thing to see, so it was the the narrative arc, and and Bill just kind of walked
4: him through his own life. The key to a good interview, which Bill certainly knows about, is you have to have a conversation with somebody. Like, we're having a conversation here. You have to listen to the person's answer, not just try to check off and go through questions. And, um, And by doing that, it gets him to go to the next level and it gets it deeper, and in many ways, it's sort of what television brings to an interview. I'm not saying that newspapers don't, but newspapers sometimes, they get the quote, and thank you very much, we'll see you later, and, and, the, and the TV kind of explores the deeper aspects of things. Um, so it kind of brings it out. So when you have something like, um, you know, when they were talking about drug dealers in lab coats, that quote that was in the piece, Bill immediately reacted, you know, you, know, you know what a horrible thing that is and sounds that he'd said, I know it because I was there and I arrested those guys and I authorized it. So there was a whole sequence that develops from something like that, that you get on TV.
1: Let me remind you, you can join the conversation by using Twitter, hashtag uh, post live. An element of this is the accountability question and, and talking to members of Congress, you tried to talk with Congressman Tom Marino of Pennsylvania, who of course was nominated to be the drug czar, no longer is. Uh, you guys got thrown out of his office, basically. Um, is this playing out the way I picture it in my head? You showing up with the 60 Minutes film crew, which is like the scariest thing I can imagine coming in through my front door, <laughs> trying to hold me accountable for well, something. I don't know how many
3: of you saw the 60 Minutes broadcast. I'm sure a lot of you did because it was uh, it was one of the most viewed broadcasts in, in recent uh, history. But you know, when 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 we walked in and and Bill <laughs> turned to the poor guy sitting behind the desk there and said, hi, we're with 60 Minutes. We'd like to talk to Congressman Marino. The guy looked like he was going to faint. <laughs> uh-huh. mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I, 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 I've been covering uh, Washington for, I've been here for 17 years, and, 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 uh, and I've interviewed lots of members of Congress and lots of people. And, you know, a lot of people will, you know, hang up on you, or they'll slam the door or whatever, but I've never had uh, the police called on me. Um, right. That was- I read, does that was,
1: happen to you all the time? That was
3: new. <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, only in New York. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, it, it, it never happened before in Washington. We've, uh, we've done a number of these kind of situational walk-ins, uh, and if, frankly, most of the time, the congressmen come out and, and try to make the best of it. Um, this was, really, uh, this was really extraordinary in terms of uh, the reaction.
3: Yeah, and to be clear, I mean, we, we made numerous attempts to set up an interview with the congressman. We contacted his office. We sent over emails. Um, so this was kind of our last-ditch thing. It wasn't like we just wanted to ambush right. him. I mean, but, you know, we really felt like... He owed uh, an explanation to the public as to why he introduced this legislation. Um, and we felt, as a, as a public official, that he should be held accountable for this legislation. Um, and he refused to talk about it. So we, we went to uh, you know, pay him a visit.
1: Let's talk about what's happened since the 60 Minutes broadcast, since the Washington Post piece um, aired Sunday. Um, the job here is not to uh, decide what change is affected, right? You guys are telling the story, and the story has legs of its own, and and the public decides where to go from here. But we did see President Trump address this, both in a press conference as well as um, on a radio show. Uh, He talked about Tom Marino, and the president said that, Tom Marino said, look, if there's even a perception that he has a conflict of interest with insurance companies, if even there's a perception of a conflict He doesn't want to have anything to do with it. Now, this wasn't about insurance companies. No. Do you have a sense that the White House, uh, have they responded, or are they they, um, savvy to what this story broke and what what the feature of this was?
4: Do I think the White House was? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, the White House definitely was. Uh, And and I think they knew that this story was in the works as well. Uh, They didn't know quite how the impact would be. Uh, I think one of the things about a collaboration is it crosses all the various social platforms. You're covering TV, you're covering news, you're covering all the other various things, and we also share an audience. We have different audiences: The Washington Post and CBS. So we're, they're, they're, uh, the Washington Post audience is being introduced to 60 Minutes, and vice versa, and it actually helps bring up everything. And I think. Um, you know, from what from what I know, uh, Trump is a, uh, President. Trump is a regular watcher of 60 Minutes, um, and uh, not I, a regular think, reader of the Washington. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I think that night he was tuned in, from what I understand. I think one of
2: the things you haven't seen uh, is the hundreds and hundreds, maybe we're into the thousands, of emails that we're getting from people. Um, And they basically are two themes, uh, at least the ones that that I'm getting. Um, Number one, it's at a time when the press is under so much pressure and under attack from the highest levels of our government, thanks for doing this. And the other one is, I know someone who died of an opioid overdose. Um, And if I had to break it down into two very broad categories that's what I'm reading and, and, and hearing. And I think those two things, combined with some of the other elements of this story, uh, are what's producing the sense of outrage.
1: I wanna reflect on a comment that uh, was said to you this morning, Lenny, um, by Dory Berkey, who is here, of course, with her husband, talking about the loss of their son. She said, her thought was, it just doesn't happen to us. You know, we're not the family who would have someone die uh, from this epidemic. We, we didn't expect it to touch us, basically. Uh, are you hearing from people who have that same uh, sense of uh, just this continuing to get worse and continuing to affect people on a very personal level?
2: Well, at this point in the epidemic, uh, it does happen to people like the Berkeys. There's no more um, segregated, segregating of populations with the opioid epidemic. It crosses... Party, it crosses. Ethnicity, it crosses. Where you live, it crosses all those lines. They're gone now. Uh, In 2016, there's gonna be about 62, 64,000 people who have died of drug overdoses when the final numbers are in. And more than half of those are gonna be opioid overdoses. So, while the Berkey's were shocked because they're such a, a normal, average, working class, middle class family, didn't expect this to happen to them, it does, it happens to everyone at this point from uh, the wealthiest folks on down.
1: Is this going to get worse before it gets better?
2: I suspect it is, I, I hope not, um, but I but I suspect that the curve uh, has not been bent yet. Um, I fear what's going on right now here it Anecdotally and there's early indications of 2017 being even worse. Um, the one glimmer of hope right now is that doctors have started to uh, reduce the number of prescriptions for these things that they write, so that will keep future uh, substance abusers, that will keep the number of future substance abusers down somewhat, but I do fear that we are going to see larger numbers before we start
3: to see smaller ones.
1: What else do you sense has happened in the last couple of days since the stories uh, have broken?
3: Well, and now there's a, well, there obviously, is a mad dash to get somebody to run the the uh, the Drug czar's office. So we'll see what happens there. Um, but there's also a lot of pressure now uh, uh, being put on this law that uh, that Mr. Marino had uh, introduced, and uh, along with a handful of other members of Congress. So we'll see what happens with that. You know, the DEA uh, chief judge has written a uh, 115 page. Uh, legal analysis of this bill in which he says this is upends 40 years of law and it really makes it very difficult for the DEA to do its job. And so uh, um, AG Sessions yesterday, uh, along with the deputy uh, attorney general, said that they were looking at this very seriously. Um, uh, I think there's a a lot of people at the Justice Department, perhaps at the White House uh, legal counsel. Uh, taking a look at the law and what it says. I mean, if you or I were to read this law, it's a lot of gobbledygook. But if, you know, there's a, if you're a drug lawyer or somebody who's in that world, you know exactly what those words mean and exactly what those words will do. And I think this is one of the reasons why it kind of slipped through Congress, because a lot of people said, well, it's the Ensuring Patient Access and Effective Drug Enforcement Act. I mean, why would you be opposed to something like that? Well, it does nothing to ensure patient access. It does nothing to improve uh, enforcement of the nation's drug laws. It actually does the opposite. Um, So I think that's probably the next step is what happens to that law. There have been calls to repeal it and we'll have to see what happens. We
4: we just heard in the green room from some of the senators there that the Senate Judiciary Committee will be holding a hearing soon on the bill. Um, And I I would not be surprised if Joe Ranazzisi is their first witness.
1: You know, I heard from Scott as well that you've gotten so many emails, just an overwhelming flood of emails and a lot of personal accounts. This has happened to my family. Thank you for reporting on this. But also this story gets at the, the fundamentals of government, right? A, a bill, it, it, it doesn't hit my schoolhouse rock memory of like how a bill becomes a law, right? Where everybody <laughs> reads it and talks about it and discusses it and changes it and then votes on it. Um, so are you getting feedback from people who are are, are glad that you're, Taking the scales from our eyes about how legislation really happens here in Washington.
3: No, oh, absolutely. We've gotten a lot of uh, readers calling and writing, saying, "Thank you very much. Uh, you know, you're you're holding people accountable. This is exactly." Uh, what journalists are supposed to do I've gotten you know notes from people saying I've never written to a reporter in my life thank you very much and you know I've been doing this for a while so it's been a really humbling experience and and I I think that what we were able to do is pull the curtain back on how Washington really works and it's not very pretty Um, lobbyists do write legislation Uh, members of Congress do not pay attention to that legislation Uh, a lot of them take money from uh, special interests without really um, you know, understanding what is behind that money or, or just kind of turning a blind eye to what these uh, these corporations really want. But these companies don't give money to members of Congress for nothing. They, they usually want something in return. And I think what, what the Washington Post in 60 Minutes has shown the country is is that, you know, our, our elected representatives need to pay a little bit more attention to what's happening
4: uh, in the halls of Congress. We have a comments section at, uh, on, on the 60 Minutes webpage. And normally after, a story that I've done, it's about, I, it's 50-50, you know, you, you guys should be strung up, you totally missed it, you, you media, you lefties. This is the first time I've actually, in reading the comments, it's almost universal, good for you guys, and congratulations, and do more of it. I, I've never had a story in, in, in the years I've been there that, that have been like so positive in the comment section, because you, you know, it's, as you know, you, the United States is divided, these comments were not divided.
3: And I think that goes back to what Libby and Lenny were saying is, is that the, you know, this knows no bounds, this epidemic. And so everybody knows somebody who has been affected. Um, everybody knows somebody who has died or they know somebody who knows somebody who has died. And these are Republicans, these are Democrats, these are families that have no uh, political bent whatsoever. This is not a political issue and I think that's why. Uh, there's been such an outpouring of appreciation from all kinds of people because this is this has nothing to do with politics.
1: People on Twitter are generally wondering, are enough people <coughs> covering the epidemic? Are enough news organizations covering the epidemic, especially from an investigative lens? So they're asking, you know what other angles? Where else can this reporting go? So, of course, we don't expect you guys to divulge exactly what you're working on. <laughs> <State> um, <two. laughs> so uh, what insight can you give us of where this goes?
2: Well, as everyone knows, regional newspapers have been hit very hard over the past 10, 12 years, and um, all of them are are covering the opioid epidemic. But they don't have the luxury sometimes of our two news organizations to spend six months on an investigative piece like that. So, you know, we are grateful for that opportunity. Um, I think that. That some of them are doing a damn good job reflecting what's going on in their community and making uh, the people who could change things aware of what's going on.
3: Yeah, I mean the, the the Gazette in West Virginia just won a Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of this epidemic, and um, and that's really inspiring to us to to see these small news organizations that are struggling uh, because they've lost uh, so much advertising uh, over the last decade. Still putting resources into this uh, into the story is is really important. So. Uh, we, we
4: cheer uh, all those people on.
1: Ira, where does this go from here?
4: Uh, I think that um, the story that we did um, will get local television stations now to say, let's cover it in our area in a bigger way. Not, let's not just co- cover you know, the car crash or the f- local three alarm fire. Let's, let's devote resources to this. And when that happens, here's how it works in Washington. So those stories happen, people at home get outraged, they call their senator and congressman, the senator and congressman looks at the mail and the incoming phone list and says, oh, I better do something about it. And so legislation is then proposed maybe to remedy it. Uh, Law enforcement maybe devotes more resources in in a proper way. Then ultimately it goes to the executive branch that says, oh, this is gonna be a big voting issue in 2020. And so then it happens. So in many ways, it begins with the media coverage. And, and it's being recognized now in the local level, probably which is the most important level in the media at the moment. Um, and once when that happens, it, it kind of gets its way, finds its way to Washington.
1: Should we watch out for more collaborations between the Washington Post and 60 Minutes?
4: Yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anything else you want to say about that? The journalist in me is uh,
4: <laughs> We won't be wait. doing the Chicago Cubs. Okay. <laughs> 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 (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: no Nats coverage. (laughs) Gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for uh, sharing some insights into your reporting. Uh, Let me just remind you, we've been talking, of course, with Ira Rosen, producer at 60 Minutes, responsible for the story there, and our reporters here at The Washington Post, Scott Hyam and Lenny Bernstein. I'm Libby Casey. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us for today. And let me just remind you that you can follow all of our upcoming events at WashingtonPostLive.com. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks.
3: Thanks, guys. Sure. Thank you, Libby. Good job.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.